And I would covet your attention in uh, Matthew chapter 4, please. Matthew 4. I had a sneaking suspicion that we would be short time, second hour today. And I want to tell you, the second hour crew, if you weren't here first hour, thank you for the, um, the few moments that you gave me, the, the respite to read and try to, uh, to catch up and finish um, my doctoral work. And uh, the report is that we're not quite there. I think I might be able to take comprehensive exams in the, in the spring. Um, and, um, but I got a lot done. Got a huge chunk of it done, and I couldn't have done it, what I did without the time. It just takes longer than I think. Krista will tell you that I'm not good at estimating time, and she is right. Okay. How long is it going to take you? Uh, just a minute. Three hours later. I'm, la- I'm, I'm the absent-minded professor sometimes. So we're in Matthew, and um, we're back to Matthew. We haven't worked through Matthew in a little while. And the last time we looked at Matthew together was in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, 1 through 11, when Jesus was being tempted by the devil. And my objective today is to apply that event to our lives, to apply the temptation of the king. Real quick, this is the outline of the gospel of Matthew. This is how it works, is it's the messages of the Lord Jesus with the stories that lead up to those messages, narrative events in the life and experience of Jesus that are the setting for the big discourse, the big speeches. And there are five big speeches in the Gospel of Matthew, with the conclusion being the last, two chap- last three chapters, 26 through 28, is his death and resurrection. So that's really how Matthew works. It's not chronologically sequenced as much. I mean, it's overarchingly chronological, but it's it's its design is to set up the big teaching events. And that's because Matthew is a primer on discipleship. It is the disciple maker making disciples and teaching us what it is to be disciples. It also answers the question why, what happened with the offer of the kingdom to Israel and its rejection. And it answers that question, that, that situation as well. So as we walk through Matthew, or Matthew 4 briefly, I want to remind, I want to apply the king's temptation experience to our lives. Now, the concept of application uh, in the, the Christian life is a fairly delicate, difficult thing to do, if you think about it. <clears throat> application is what we do with what the word says and what God means by it. Application is not the same as the word of God. Let me illustrate what I mean by that. If you read a passage that convicts you about a behavior you're involved in, but the Bible doesn't talk about that specific behavior, then you're going to grab that passage and apply its concept to what you're dealing with, to the thing that you're specifically involved in. And it may be in a general sense, I'm just not paying attention to God and this is in my way. And so there's an application. But to take that, that's a problem for you, that non-sinful behavior that you use sinfully, take that application, I can't be involved in that, and then to apply that to everybody and say, nobody should ever engage in that behavior because I became an idolater to that behavior. That's not what the scriptures are teaching. You have taken your application and you have tried to make it the scriptures. And so we just have to be very careful with this. Application is a very sensitive topic. Here's an interesting thought. When I have somebody that I'm different with in, in Christian circles, they believe the Bible, but we differ on what it means. What's interesting is often we'll be in agreement on how it applies. I have very little in common theologically in detail with Roman Catholics, for example. But there's a lot that I agree with 
conservative Roman Catholics in the conduct of our nation and what should be right and wrong and how we should apply government and what God means by human life. A lot in common with these people. And yet I differ greatly on whether to pray to Mary, for example, which is a very important emotional undercurrent in the whole system. And I don't think it's right at all. So what I'm saying is there's an application thread that is in common. See, how, how do we deal with American government? Well, the Bible says the Bi- everything we do with American government is application. See what I mean? I've seen church splits happen over brother so-and-so mystically intuiting that his understood application of a passage means that everybody has to submit to it. Well, that makes his application scripture, and it's now he's a prophet or an apostle. And so I just want to warn you about this. We're constantly needing to bring the word of God to bear in our lives, but that is, first and foremost, a conscience thing between you and God how this word applies to me. Is it universally true that we need to humble ourselves in the pattern of Jesus Christ and let God have your way? It is universally true. What will that look like at your job is something that between you and the Lord, you know how that's gonna work. You know where the challenges are. And, and I'm, I'm probably not gonna be able to specifically hit you with that. So just be careful about the concept of application. In my understanding of a a, a worshipful approach to the Bible, the way we worship God in our coming to the scriptures, we go for what God said and seek to know what he meant by what he said in the Bible. That's, That's observation and interpretation. We correlate those interpretations, God's meaning of what he said, with all that God said and get our categorical theology, and then we apply it as the last step. And that application is sometimes passed off as the interpretation of the passage. So just be very careful. Another word of caution on application, because I'm trying to set you up to live out the Bible. Like, read your life through the word of God. Apply it all the way through. Live it out and, and be serious in your approach to God's word as you study and as you seek to please God in your day-by-day choices of worship to God. Our lives are supposed to be worshiped. But in, in this application thing, when you want to say, Jesus is my example, he's my model, I'm going to be like him, there is a way that that's yes, and, and there are ways that that's no. You can't be like him. For example, you won't be the sinless son of God. But the Apostle Paul says that because we're in Christ, we're sons of God. We're heirs with Christ of God. But you're not God in the flesh, The Holy Spirit lives in you, and so your body, the flesh, becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit, but you're not God the Son. Do you understand what I'm saying? There are prerogatives that come with being Christ, the Christ, that we don't have. There is authority that he had that he didn't give to us. And that presumptuousness, that I'm going to do what Jesus did because Jesus told us to do it. Sometimes people get presumptuous and mystical and emotional and, frankly, uh, wrong and their applications trying to live like Jesus lived. You have to make that distinction. There's a difference between him and us, and that he's God and we're not, and that he's sinless and that we're not. He's the anointed of God, and that he's the king of kings and lord of lords, and we're not. Will we rule with Christ? Yes, but under him, always under him. And so you want to be very careful about taking what Peter tells us very explicitly is our example. He left us an example that we follow in his footsteps. You want to do that wisely with the fear of the Lord and not presumptuously. So as we look at Jesus' temptations, he was tempted in all manners we are yet without sin. And we see Hebrews chapter 12 tells us to apply his example to ourselves and we can rejoice through our sufferings because of the joy that's set before us. 
As you apply the pattern of Jesus, just remember you're not Jesus. When Jesus spoke with, my favorite example of this, when Jesus spoke with authority and amazed everyone because he taught with authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. I've heard that taught as we Christians should go forward with authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees, because Jesus did. I'm like, well, maybe that's a factor of his messiahship. Maybe he, as God in the flesh, is telling us how to read the law because he gave it in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm real careful about that. There's a book by Roy Zuck called Teaching as Jesus Taught. It's a Christian you know, education sort of theological thing I had to read for a course. And I really love Roy Zuck. And it's, a, it's an interesting, like how do we teach like Jesus taught? I'm not Jesus. And yet it's no longer I am living, but Jesus is living in me. For me to live is Christ and die is gain, right? So there's a sense where I very much am to put on Christ and yet not assume um, something that he hasn't given me. So just be careful about that. We're not going to be gods. We're not God. We will not become divinized. That's not the sense that the Bible tells us we're sons of God. And if we're not careful, if we're just not very careful with the text, especially in application, then Pastor San Antonio, Texas, so-and-so, or Houston, Texas, and his wife, Pastor, Mrs. Pastor, so-and-so, might get up and say, you're God. You're not God. I don't care if Oprah says it. You're not. We'll never become deified, but we are to walk as Christ walked. So we're going to apply the temptation of Jesus as we work through the story very briefly. It says in the English, then Jesus was led into the wilderness by the spirit to be tempted by the devil. Here's the first point of application. You have been given the Holy Spirit of God and you're supposed to walk by the spirit. Notice Paul, the apostle of Jesus. He's a Christian. He's not a Pauline Christian. He's a Christian. He's coming from Jesus with the words of Jesus from the father. The apostle Paul says, walk by the spirit. You will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Jesus was led walking into the wilderness to be tempted by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. In in a sense, there is in your Christian life the empowerment that empowered our Savior's humanity in his earthly sojourn. And here's how this works. You don't have the exact same manifestation of the Holy Spirit that Christ did, but what you have is every spiritual resource in the power and person of the third person of of the Holy Spirit, every resource you need to do everything the Father wants you to do. You are infinitely capable of doing the things that God wants you to do because the infinitely powerful Holy Spirit lives in you. And that's a very important point of coincidence between you and Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit who the apostle calls the Spirit of Christ. Why? Because he's the Spirit who empowered Jesus in his earthly ministry. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12 that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit won't be, forgi- won't be forgiven. And what he's talking about is they said the works Jesus was doing were in the power of Satan. And, and Jesus said, hey, you just blasphemed the Holy Spirit because the works I was doing were in the power of the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit in you to equip you to do all that God has commanded you. Now, here's the, the difference point with you and Jesus. He had a mission that you don't have. He also had a mission that you do have. His mission was to die for the sins of the world, not your mission. It's not. We're not, we're not dying for people's sins. We're not perfectly sinless lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. That's only Jesus, right? But we're revealing the father by pointing to him and giving his word. That's our mission. And so Jesus was sent to reveal the father. We, we do this in his train, in his power, in the power that he gave us. So when someone wants to say, well, if you don't have these miraculous signs, 
If you don't have these miraculous, powerful signs that we see in Christ's ministry in the first century with the apostles, then you must not have the same Holy Spirit. And the problem there is that we're trying to say the works that Jesus was called to do are the exact same things, raise the dead, cast out demons, cleanse the left, that we're supposed to do those things. And here's what I think about the miraculous. It's real. It was early. It was to authenticate the message. It has been authenticated. And we have the miraculous message of Christ who died for your sins. And if you trust in him, you join him in the resurrection to life. We will, this message is much bigger than we're going to raise you from the dead. And then you die again later. This message is that having trusted in Christ, you're born new into eternal life and you have that life forever. That's the big miracle. And we downplay it because it's not flashy. We can't see it. It will be something that will be flashy. And twinkling an eye at the last trumpet, we will be all changed into a glorious eternal resurrection body. That's coming, but it's not here now. So we want the flashy and the, and the authenticating. The message was authenticated in the first century, and we don't need the miraculous, but we do have the same Holy Spirit empowering us to do the work of making disciples. Well, I just can't talk to people. You can do whatever God wants you to do. I just can't live worthy of Christ in my daily life because sin is such a heavy temptation. You can You can only in the Spirit. You can't in yourself, but you can in the Holy Spirit. And so if God has maturing and demonstrating work to do in you through temptation that even uses Satan and his fallen angels. If like Jesus, God leads you through the valley of the shadow of death where your only hope is in Christ and you are dealing with the enemy of God who is tempting and testing you to deny your savior in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can trust in Christ and you can be a witness for Jesus in that circumstance. And so you can apply this temptation to your life. Whatever God has for you, you can do whatever he has for you. Well, how do I know what he has for me? You very carefully approach God's word very carefully and ask, what does he say? What does he want? What do I do now? I just messed everything up. Now what? Well, check your pulse. Are you still here? You just messed everything up? Okay, okay. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Oh, I've already confessed that sin. I did it again. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I tell you these things, little children, so that you not sin. Walk in dependence on the power supplied by the Holy Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It will be impossible for you to walk after your sinful nature. So you are in God's power, rendered spiritually useful to him in a personal rapport with him called fellowship, and in the power and filling of the Holy Spirit through the word of Christ, you can say no to your flesh. Now, this is an interesting thing. You and I are tempted from within. Jesus was not. His temptations were fully external. He had no sin nature. But he, in the story, was brought to great weakness, great physical weakness. And we don't have to be fasting for 40 days and 40 nights to be in great physical weakness because of our sinful nature. We're suffering under a temptation of sin all the time. Not all the same sin, but it's always a problem. And the problem isn't just sexual lust. It isn't just the desire to gossip or to be self-righteous or that arrogant sense that it's all about me or I've got to have my way or I feel like having something that God said no to and I say yes to. It's all of these things at any given moment. And sometimes you feel pretty strong. I'm not feeling a lot of temptation right now. Hey, take a good deep breath. Apparently the bell rang and you're sitting out in the corner waiting for the bell to ring again, go back into it. 
If you get a break from the temptation of the sin nature, thank God and focus on your breathing. You're about to head back in. So Jesus was led by the, into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil very much applies to us because we're still fighting in the same war. We have a different role, but the same enemy is out there and he's looking to devour you. It's a battle of our thoughts, as we know, and we meet all of Satan's attacks with the armor of God, especially the shield of the faith, which extinguishes the flaming arrows of the evil one. Well, in the story, in the experience, the historical event of Jesus' temptation, we see his MO, his battle drill method of dealing with temptation. You've got temptation from within and without. He had temptation from without and weakness in his flesh. Okay, so there's a common ground there. You've got a problem of temptation. You have Satan attacking you in ways you can't see. That's the book of Job. He never knows it's Satan. He just knows he lost his kids and his health and his wealth. He doesn't know it's Satan. You don't know what, where Satan's involved. You just know you're, you're hurting, you're under attack, you're under pressure. After Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry, so he's weakened in the flesh, and that was the Father's will for him to be as he's being led by the Spirit. And after uh, he came to him, after Satan came to him, the tempter said, if you're the Son of God, command these stones become bread. Now, the temptation Satan brings, and this is one of the three things Satan does, can be categorical. Maybe you could take any temptation you receive into one of these three things. But this is something that seems super legitimate to us to satisfy our physical needs. I mean, a man's got to eat. I've got to eat. It's just how it is. And so God said, don't eat in this case. But I decided that I'm hungry or I'm feeling an urge to eat or I'm having a natural impulse to something that would satisfy an appetite. Can we abstract it that way? I have an appetite. God made me the way he made me. I'm having this appetite to satisfy this urge. There's a couple of things that fit into that category like that. One of them is eating food. There's another appetite that sounds very similar. That once satisfied, okay, satisfied. And that's how we're made. So in this case, the word from the Father is no. Don't you eat any food. I'm bringing you to weakness. I'm trying to get something done here through the Holy Spirit. I'm demonstrating something about who you are as the Messiah, which is what's happening in the, in the life of our Savior. So God says no to legitimate appetite. So it's a right thing to eat, but it's a wrong way when God said no, so I'm going to not do it. Abstain. It's an abstinence of an otherwise legitimate appetite. Wow, could our culture use a little bit of instruction on abstinence of an otherwise legitimate appetite not to be fulfilled in a, in, except in the way God said. Boy, that's, that really preaches. So, so this is Satan's word is, hey, you can, you've got the power to satisfy your appetite. Just do it. You could do this. Just eat. But he answered and said, let's apply the word of God to your satanic suggestion. In Genesis chapter two, God said, from any tree you may eat, but the tree in the center of the garden you may not eat. For in the day you eat from it, you will surely die. Cut to Genesis three. Did God say you can't eat from any tree? He said, if we eat from the tree in the center, then we'll die, and even if we touch it. And Satan said, you will not die. Absolutely will not die. He doubles the verb like all the other passages. Now, God's word had already come to Adam. He apparently had passed something of it to Eve. She added to it. But, but they have the word from God about the tree. They know the principle. God said, don't eat from it, because if you do, you'll die. You, you will absolutely die. Satan says you won't die. That temptation to try and see that he presents to the woman in the garden in Genesis 3 
is easily met with already revealed word from God. They already knew what God said about it. I trust in God. He said we'll die. That's the end. The creature says, well, you won't die. God's lying to you. You have a choice to make. And they made the wrong one. They believed the creature instead of the creator. And, and Jesus exhibits his fitness to rule here because he takes pre-existing the word of God in Deuteronomy. He's supposed to, as the king, have a copy of the book of Deuteronomy. So he answers all these challenges of Satan to his kingship with the book of Deuteronomy. And he says, it is in, it's written, not upon bread alone will a man live, but upon every word which comes out of the mouth of God, Deuteronomy 8.3. All right, it's a real simple, a real simple thing. The temptation is this. God said this. It's a simple choice before my volition. Will I go with God's word or will I go with the temptation? And what I feel like, which one do I choose? It's a simple choice. In the power of the Holy Spirit, despite the fact that you're a wretched sinner, in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, as he's filling you with the word of Christ, you can say, God's word says, and so I choose to love him more than I feel like doing this and satisfy myself. It's a personal, relational choice every time. It's I love him, I want to serve him. He said what he wants for me. And in this moment, despite how I feel, I choose to trust that his best is good enough for me and say no to that temptation. You see how it works? You take God's word and you make it personal. Not just the word said, and so that's the law. That's the impartial law. And I'm doing like a math problem. Do the math. The math says no. The answer is don't do it. But then why? Because I love him. Because I trust him, because I truly believe, listen to it, that God's best for me is better than anything I can manufacture for myself. Because I really believe he is who he said he is. And so in this moment where my temptation is very physical, it's very real to me, it's very desirable. Yet I know my creator and I walk by faith, not by sight. And I'm trusting him with this thing. And I'm saying no to that and yes to him. And I'm going to have to probably do that in prayer, right? I'm probably going to have to say, God, just like Jesus demonstrated, I'd rather please you than myself, but this hurts. Can you help me? You meet it with God's word for God's sake, for God's person. It's, it's easy to say, well, you just apply the word to it. But in what sense? It's the word of God, it's him. I want to please him. It's for his sake. It's personal. And it's a loving choice. And love is not, perhaps, mostly how we feel. It's what we're responsible for and what we choose. And I, I want you to have the feels that go with that. It's called joy in the spirit. But before there's joy, there's the responsibility and the choice and the obligation and that's life for you and me. I love him. I choose to serve him. That's how Jesus deals with the first one. He meets the word of God and his relationship with God. On the basis of that word, he meets Satan's temptation with that. And you can apply it that way. It's personal between me and God. The devil took him into the holy city, stood on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it's been written in Psalm 91. His angels will command concerning you and upon his hands, they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Satan is basically saying, oh, you want to quote the Hebrew scriptures? Okay, I'll quote the Hebrew scriptures. And Satan does. He quotes scripture. Did you know Satan can quote scripture? 
Yeah, he misuses it. And it's very interesting how he misuses it because he applies a messianic psalm to the Messiah correctly. But the way he uses that to, uh, to say, tempt your God and defy your creator, or not your creator, but your father, our creator, his father, the way Satan tempts him to defy the father is completely opposed to the Messiah's agenda. So he has an, a messianic psalm. He correctly identifies it messianic, applies it correctly to Jesus in an incorrect way. And what's the difference? Relationship with the Father. Just say no to him. Just transgress him. And this is Genesis 3, verse 5. God knows that when you eat from the tree, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. He's holding back from you. It's that maligning of God's character. It's always personal about God. Do you trust him? Is he good? Is he righteous? Is he holy? Does he love you? Is his good for you good enough? And Jesus declared to him again, okay, you want to go to Psalms? I'm going to stay in Deuteronomy. I've got the kind of Kung Fu. I don't have a lot of moves, but everyone that I have works for everything you can throw at me. I'll just keep working Deuteronomy because he's the king and the king has to have his copy of Deuteronomy. Again, it's written, you will not put, the te- put to the test the Lord your God. And so that is my answer is you want me to misapply Psalm 91, but I'm going to apply it correctly. Now, what's the temptation? It's to glory. It's to glorify himself, demonstrate who you are. I mean, you shouldn't be walking around in rags with just a few ragtag guys. You should be, they should be carrying you around. You should be honored and glorified and exalted. In fact, the angels should be carrying you around since we really know who you are. We need some Ezekiel chapter 1 and, verse, and, and chapter 10, heavenly throne divan chair, like his mighty chariot carried around by Cherub, by the cherubim. We need to see that because this is who we're talking about. It's God in the flesh. Jesus, you need your glory. Let's see it. Now, how does that apply to you and me? We need our glory. We need our significance. We need our important uh, sense of who we are. We need to be somebody. And it isn't just our sin nature saying it. Now, I don't agree with any ministries that emphasize self-esteem because that diminishes Christ. What I do say is that God made you for a glorious purpose and you find your significance and your value in his design. You are not nothing, but you are God's image bearer corrupted by sin. You're not nothing. You're not worthless. You have great worth in God's assessment. And listen to me, separated from him, no worth. Read Ecclesiastes. It's all meaningless. It's all vapor if all there is is life under the sun. But see, that's not how it is. You have infinite worth because God bought you at an infinite price. So what is your significance? How will you find it? Well, you'll humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he promotes you at the proper time or exalt you at the proper time by casting all your cares on him for he cares for you. God has a plan for your glory. God has a plan for your promotion, for your advancement. You don't need to go secure it for yourself. And you certainly don't want to throw God away in order to glorify yourself, which is the proposal here. You don't say no to God to get glory for yourself or promotion for yourself, or, well, I got to eat, so I got to feed the family, so I mean, no to God so I could take care of my temporal needs. That's Matthew 6. We're getting there. We don't reject God because we need to be somebody. We throw ourselves at his feet and say, make of me what you will in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Just do what you want. I'm all yours because what you're going to do with me is far greater than I can ever do for myself. This is what Jesus' discipleship discussion about losing your life for his sake and so finding it, as opposed to hanging on to your life and so losing it. 
No, your significance is established in God and him, him having his way. And so again, it's personal relationship. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Take what he said in his word about your proper exaltation at the proper time. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. He was showing him the kingdom of the earth, the world in their glory. And he said to him, these all to you I will give if you fall down and worship me. Luke 4, they've all been given to me and I give them to whoever I want. Remember, Luke 4 says in verse 6, it isn't repeated here quite as explicitly, but it's the same message. All these kingdoms of the earth belong to me. By the way, all the kingdoms of the earth of Connecticut, of everywhere, belong to Satan. He's got them in his hand. He gives them to whoever he wants. It's not going to change until a very wonderful, glorious, and kinetic event changes the order. It's in Dan- Read it in Daniel 2. All the kingdoms of the earth are crushed to powder, and then Jesus' kingdom becomes the glorious thing that fills the earth. That's where we're headed. That's the solution. But here, Satan says, just fall down and worship me. Now, should Jesus rule all the kingdoms in Psalm 2? Absolutely, like first hour we said. Should Jesus be glorified and exalted? Absolutely. But what's the problem? He's going to get it the wrong way. He's going to get it through delegation from Satan instead of God the Father. And God doesn't want it that way. No, Satan, you're not part of this chain of command. You don't get to buy in to the scheme of God the Father's plan for glory and his creation since you're the destruction of God's creation. Fall down and worship me. And Jesus quoted again Deuteronomy. Go away from me, Satan, for it's written, the Lord your God you will worship and him alone you'll serve. Deuteronomy 6.13. Then the devil left him. Behold, the angels came and began to minister to him. Why is Jesus even in this situation as we apply this? Why is he even there? Why are you having to face the temptations that you have to face? Did you know that in the passage, it doesn't tell you why? There's no explicit statement of why this is in the story. It's just dropped in there in its order. We think we have the answer. We put it, we look in the context of the whole book of Matthew. In in context, wait, not that one, that one. You have the origin of the king and the genealogy. You have his arrival and his birth. You have the conflict with the world. The world rejects the king and inherit, but, uh, but some receive him in the, the persons of the magi and their gift, they're giving gifts to the king. You have the identification of the king through the herald where he anoints Jesus in the Jordan River, the baptism of Jesus. These are all presentational in the introduction to these great disciples of discourses. Who are we talking about? And then finally, his fitness as the king because he can apply God's word and trust in the Father and put relationship with him above all things so that he really is fit to rule over the Father's works for the Father's sake. Like that fits in context, but notice the passage doesn't say this is the point of this narrative. It just puts it in there. And this is our take on it. You see what I mean? This is, it seems to be that's why. This is the flow that now we're demonstrating the king is fit in his trust of the father. And Satan can't topple him like he did Adam. I mean, it all fits, but it's inductive. It's inductive. And that's what I want to say about your suffering. The Bible does not tell you why you are specifically facing the hard thing that you're facing. It may not be a sin problem or a demonic oppression problem. You just may be facing a tough situation where the answer is no, but you feel like it should be yes because of legitimate reasons. You might be facing something that hurts you so bad and you don't know what to do about it. And your tendency may be at times to ask if God is good, to see if uh, maybe I should be angry about this and bitter, to bitterly react in sin about the problem that you're facing. 
I don't think that God tells us why we suffer, just like he didn't tell Job why he was suffering. But as observers of the story of Job, he lets us in and says, there's something going on in heaven between God and Satan and Job's suffering. What am I telling you? I'm telling you that when you are suffering, as Jesus suffered here, you are facing a kind of temptation. And what do we do with temptation? We walk by the Spirit, and so we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. We abide in Jesus Christ, and through the suffering, produce much fruit. We walk with Him, and we trust Him. And every test is a test of our faith. Every test is a test of, do I trust in Jesus Christ? Do I trust in God to be the good, righteous, holy, loving God He's revealed Himself to be, who keeps His promises, and keeps His promises all the way forever? Do I believe this is who He is, or do I choose to look at my trouble and say my feelings are more real to me than God's testimony of himself. And what happens as I keep choosing to lift the shield of faith and trust in him and take his word and apply it in my personal relationship with him, what happens through that suffering as I take it back to him and I trust him, I say, no, you know this hurts and you're letting me hurt. And I thank you for the fact that you say you're going to bring good out of this, but I certainly don't feel it. I certainly don't feel like it. In those moments of suffering, this is our faith where we're trusting him despite our feelings. And it's very challenging. But it's okay. It's perfect nutrition, the word of God. It's perfect exercise that God is putting you through. The challenges that were hard for you 30 years ago are really easy now. The math you did as a three or four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, that early math, that is simple once you get into algebra. And algebra really isn't much at all once you're trying to figure out differential equations. But when you were doing it, this is so hard. And that's how it works. It's graduated. And I want to remind you, Jesus suffered like we do in all manner, yet without sin. And the Holy Spirit is in you, and you, through the Spirit, can bring the word to bear on your circumstance and make it about a personal relationship with God in the struggle. You can say, I'm going to worship God even if this hurts. I'm going to worship God even if I feel that I'm losing significance or that, my, that I'm, I'm being uh, forgotten and wasted. I'll trust God. He's, got, he's in charge of my significance. I'm going to trust in God even if... Um, I could promote myself, but it would be outside of his design. I have to lie to do it or or something. I'm going to trust God because he's got me. And it's always back in Jesus' example. It's always back to personal relationship. See, this is to me how you apply these temptations to your circumstance. And the final thing I'll say about that that you have in common with him is that you have been marked out as the bride of Christ, the body of Christ and bride to rule with him in his coming kingdom. The book of Proverbs is written by Solomon to train his sons uh, in wisdom. Now, who would Solomon's sons be? Well, that'd be the next generation of rulers. Much of what Solomon says, he says, my father taught me. Who Who would that be? Who's Solomon's father? That'd be King David. Proverbs is royalty literature for training of the future rulers. That's what wisdom is. And Jesus in Isaiah 11 will rule and the power of the Holy Spirit of wisdom, the spirit of wisdom. You need it to rule. That's the whole story of the kings. Now, 
What are we going to do? What's our future? What's our destiny? We are being groomed, trained, equipped to rule. We have a glorious and exalted calling, and we're suffering now. But we're not suffering in misery. We're suffering in joy for the joy that's set before us. We endure with Jesus, and we disregard the shame. And as a consequence, as we persevere, as we trust God through it, as we make his relationship more important than even my feelings, what happens is we will be exalted and glorified. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we close this morning with eternal life for anyone who doesn't have it. How would you know if you have the life? Well, 1 John chapter 5 says, if you have the Son, you have the life. If you trust in Christ as your Savior, then you can be sure you have eternal life. And here's the thing. If you don't have the Son, then you don't have life because you haven't believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And that is the issue. We've talked about Christian suffering. We've talked about the attack of Satan and the inner temptation from our sinful nature and how we deal with these painful realities. But the ultimate pain, the ultimate issue is eternal separation from God. No human being on earth is fully separated from God in terms of his common grace. But when the time comes for the final judgment and eternal separation, the second death, it will be the lake of fire burning with sulfur. It will be conscious eternal torment, which is the lot of those who who are separated from God. It is a destiny prepared, the scriptures say, for the devil and his fallen angels and those who follow them horrifically, those image bearers who are designed to serve God will be there with them. And that is not a destiny anyone that loves you wants you to face. We want you to trust in Christ as your savior and have eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Father, thank you for the eternal life that is ours for the eternal life we have now, not that we're looking forward to only, but that we enjoy now despite our degraded circumstances. Thank you that you've upgraded us and put the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the earnest of the inheritance. And thank you that as we consider him, consider your son, consider all that you've given us, we can rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory despite the hardship of our circumstances. Help us keep these things in mind. Father, don't let us leave today having looked into the word and seen what it says about us. Don't let us, as James says, walk away as fools and forget what it said, but let us take on the mantle of our high calling for that is our position. Let us live it out. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.